0: Thank you, Ricky, for that ministry and music. There are at least three different views or perspectives that we can have as we take a look at Christ's death on the cross to gain a better perspective in all that Christ has accomplished for us. The first view is the penal substitutionary view, namely that Christ died in our place, taking upon himself the penalty of our sin. The second view is the Christus Victor view, that is Christ as conqueror, that by his death and resurrection, Jesus conquered sin, death, and ultimately the evil one. And the third view is the exemplary view, that Christ's death on the cross, serves as an example for us as to how we should live and die. All three of those views are biblical, all three are worthy of great consideration, and as it was announced, one of the electives is going to be a study of the atonement, and I'm going to look at all of those views in depth and more as we uh, consider that subject together. But this morning, we're going to focus on the exemplary view of the atonement, how Jesus serves for us as an example of how we are to live. For example, the death on the cross is a supreme example for us of self-denial. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So the cross is a picture of self-denial and it is likened unto each one of us have our own cross to bear, have our own burden, have our own way in which we are to serve God. Jesus is the supreme example of humble and obedient service. In the book of Philippians, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this attitude be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being the form of God thought not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So he serves as our example of humble obedience, even unto death, the death of the cross. But this morning, there's one particular way in which Jesus serves for us as an example that I want to focus our attention upon. That is that Jesus serves for us as an example of how to suffer. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. That's going to be my text this morning, 1 Peter chapter 2. In preparation for communion, following Christ's example set for us, in regards to suffering. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, key verse. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to know how to follow in his steps. So our text tells us explicitly that Jesus is an example of how to suffer. And then it says that we are to follow in his steps, verse 21. We are to place our feet in the footprints that Jesus left along the pathway to suffering. Now I am not a mountain climber by any means, but I enjoy watching documentaries and reading about other people's exploits and adventures when it comes to mountain climbing. And uh, one of the things that I've become aware of is that it's extremely dangerous to try to traverse in the Arctic regions in snow-covered areas. In fact, it's very good to have a guide, someone that can provide you with instruction so as you might know how to walk to avoid the crevices that are covered over with snow that if you were to be walking along and then all of a sudden step onto one of these snow-covered crevices, you would fall to your death. And of course, there's the ongoing dread of avalanches. So you need to follow the instruction of the guide. But beyond that, oftentimes the hikers are encouraged to actually step in the very footprints that the guide leaves behind. He goes forth. He goes first. And those that follow are to actually step in his footprints to avoid the crevices and be able to navigate their way safely to their destination. It's kind of that picture for us this morning, when it tells us that we are to follow in the steps of Jesus, we are to place our lives in the very steps that he walked so as to avoid the dangers and the trials and the undoings of this life that would cause us to fail to live the lives that we ought to live. He is going to teach us the way to navigate the pathway of suffering, how to be successful, suffering, We are told to walk in his steps. Walk as he walked. So, how did he walk? First, the first step is that we are to follow Christ's example of suffering innocently. Following Christ's example of suffering innocently. Notice 1 Peter 2.22 who, referring to Jesus, committed no sin. Committed no sin. Jesus was innocent or sinless in the absolute sense of the word. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet without sin. Tempted in every single way, even as we are tempted and yet without sin. Jesus died innocently in that Jesus died for the truth. Look at 1 Peter 2.22. Who committed no sin, and now these words, nor was any deceit, untruthfulness found in his mouth. Jesus spoke the truth, Jesus lived the truth, and Jesus suffered and died for the truth. Before Jesus died, he was put on trial by Pilate, and he was examined by Pilate. And during that examination, Pilate said this, Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate therefore said to Jesus, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said, What is truth? What is significant is that Pilate found Jesus to be innocent. Blameless, guiltless of the charges that were brought against him, and saw no reason for Jesus to suffer and to die. Pilate repeatedly, repeatedly announced his verdict that Jesus was innocent. John 1838, Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, "I find no guilt in him." John 19:4. And Pilate came out again and said to them, "Behold, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him." When therefore the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! This is when Pilate offered Jesus or Barabbas to the crowd. One of them should be set free. Pilate already said twice that he found no guilt in Jesus and now says, Who do you want me to offer to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate says, well, what do you want me to do with Jesus? They cried out, saying, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate says, if you want to crucify him, you crucify him, but I'm telling you, this is an innocent man. Repeatedly, Pilate says he is an innocent man. First Peter 222 says that there was no deceit found in his mouth. That statement is a fulfillment of a prophecy that's made in the book of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, it says this. His grave, that is referring to the Messiah, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Now the prophecy was that the Messiah would be assigned a place with the wicked. Jesus died on the cross in Gethsemane. He died as a criminal. And one of the ways in which a person was defamed, one of the aspects of the punishment if you will, is that the criminal would not receive a proper burial they would be buried in a common grave. No distinct markings. Nothing to honor their death. They were to be placed in a common grave. Well, in the sovereignty of God, Jesus is not placed in a common grave. He's actually placed in a tomb. He's placed in the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. One of the reasons is so that the tomb could be demonstrated to be empty. If you were in a common grave, it would have been very hard to demonstrate that Christ indeed had risen from the dead. But it was the purpose of God that he'd be placed in a tomb. But we are pointed out that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. Why? Because it's a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53 that though assigned to be disgraced, He actually is placed among the rich. Why did Pilate do that? Why did Pilate make an exception for Jesus? Why did Pilate allow the body of Jesus to be honored instead of defamed? It was Pilate's small way of trying to make up for the injustice that he had just overseen. Summed up in the words, there was no deceit found in his mouth. Pilate knew that he was guiltless. Pilate knew that he was innocent. And so Pilate allowed Jesus to be placed in the grave of a rich man. So he provides for us an example of suffering innocently. But how? How? We are not and cannot be sinless. Therefore, we cannot be innocent to the same degree that Jesus was innocent. But we can suffer wrongfully. That is, we can be blamed for doing things that we have not done. We certainly can be treated unfairly. We can be mistreated. And in that sense, we are called to suffer innocently. Look at verse 18. 1 Peter 2, 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Verse 19. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Verse 20. For what credit is there if when you sin and you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience, but if when you do what is right and you suffer for it and you endure patiently, this finds favor with God. When you do what is right and suffer for it, all three examples of suffering innocently. We are called, as a people of God, to suffer innocently. Sometimes we are not treated fairly. Sometimes we are not treated honestly. Sometimes we are misrepresented. Sometimes we are misunderstood. Oftentimes we are overlooked. Maybe you don't get the promotion that you deserve. Maybe you don't get the credit that you deserve at work. Maybe in your own home you are unappreciated. We are called upon to suffer innocently. Secondly, and I will make an application at the end. Secondly, we are to follow in the step of Christ's example in suffering patiently. Patiently. 1 Peter 2.20, for what credit is there if when you sin and you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So twice in this verse, we are to consider patience, patience, suffering patiently. How does one suffer patiently? Well, first, in suffering patiently, one does not exchange insult for insult, verse 23. And while being reviled, he, that is Jesus, did not revile in return while suffering. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was cruelly ridiculed. NIV says, when they hurled their insults, he did not retaliate. When they were mocking, he did not in turn mock them. When they were talking about his end, he did not cruelly speak of their end. When they questioned his goodness, he did not question theirs. He did not seek to mock or to ridicule or in any way to retaliate by insulting those who insulted him. So one way in which we suffer patiently is when people mock us, ridicule us, or insult us, that we don't go off and treat them in the same way that they've treated us. that if they call us a knucklehead, we don't call them a knucklehead in one further. When they make fun of us, that we don't seek to make fun of them. When they ridicule us, we don't seek to ridicule them. When they disgrace us, we don't seek to disgrace them. That's one way in which we suffer patiently. In suffering patiently, Jesus did not seek to uh, bring harm To anyone. Notice verse 23. He uttered no threats. He uttered no threats. He did not try to harm those in any way who were harming him. The reason I actually chose this passage this morning is because it has much in common with Matthew 5 when we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we saw that we were not to be angered by individuals and seek to harm them in any way whether that be in insults, whether that be emotionally, and certainly physically, and ultimately in causing their death. Jesus did not seek the harm of those that were crucify him in any sense of the word. He was not angered by them. He did not retaliate them. He did not threaten them. In fact, he did just the opposite. Luke 23, 23, And when they came to the place called the skull... There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand, the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was not seeking their harm or destruction, he was seeking their preservation, their keeping. And then, lastly, in suffering patiently, Jesus did not take matters into his own hands, but rather trusted God to do what was right. Verse 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the God who judges righteously. He left things in God's hand. He submitted himself to the sovereign will of God. This is what God has for Jesus. And he will submit to it. Trusting in a God who will do right. God's purpose will triumph. Jesus will prove to be a blessing to others and he in turn ultimately will be blessed. But what is that purpose? Why should you and I be willing to suffer? What is the motivation? Well, in a broad sense, we can say, well, that's our responsibility as a Christian. That's what we do in obedience to God. That's true. Can we narrow that down any? Well, we might say, well, it's because it's our purpose to honor and glorify God, and God is honored and glorified by our suffering innocently and patiently. and The answer to that is, that's true. But can we narrow it down any more than that? Can we zero in, can we target a specific reason or purpose that should motivate us this morning? That should cause us to look at what we are experiencing in our lives. Whether in the workplace, whether in our home, whether we're taking all kinds of guff from our kids, whether our next-door neighbor is feuding with us, whatever the situation is, is there a focal point this morning that can bring some kind of reason or purpose to what we are going through? Notice 1 Peter 2.21. For you have been called... NAS, for this purpose, for this reason. NIV, to this you were called. King James, for even hereunto ye were called. We are called not merely to suffer, we are to suffer for a reason, a purpose to suffer with intentionality, to suffer with a hope, with an expectation, with an end in view, to suffer as a high calling, to suffer for a worthy cause, what is it? The answer is that Christ suffered redemptively. Christ suffered redemptively, and so should we. The third step is that we are to follow in Christ's example of suffering redemptively. What do I mean by that? Jesus suffered redemptively by willingly taking on himself the consequences of our sinful actions. Look at 1 Peter 2.24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's why he suffered innocently. That's why he suffered patiently. That's why he endured. Because he intentionally, he purposefully bore our sins. He took our judgment upon himself, he absorbed what we were worthy of. The wrath of God and the wrath of man he took in our place. Jesus suffered so that we would obtain salvation. 1 Peter, now jump to chapter 3, verse 18. I'm going to try to bring this whole argument together from the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter three eighteen, For Christ also died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. To reconcile us to God. To bring us into a right relationship with God. That's what Jesus had in view. Likewise, we are to suffer redemptively. Now, we cannot bear anyone else's sin in the way that Jesus did. We can't die in somebody else's place. We can't take upon ourselves their sin. First of all, we're not sinless. And God would never look at them and be satisfied. So in the fullest sense of the word, we cannot suffer redemptively. But in a microcosm, We can. We can suffer redemptively in that we can intentionally, we can purposefully, we can resolve in our heart and mind that we are going to be willing to endure suffering innocently and we are going to to suffer patiently so that other people will be saved so that we can be agents in bringing them to Christ. Now, notice how this is applied in the text. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. 1 Peter 3, 1. In the same way, in the same way as referring back to Christ, in the same way that he suffered, patiently, innocently, redemptively, In that same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. So the first example is wives, be willing to suffer for the sake of your husband's salvation. Maybe you are here this morning, and your husband doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as a savior. Maybe you have a, a child that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ is their savior. Maybe you have a sister, an aunt, an uncle. You have someone in your family that doesn't know Jesus Christ as your savior. You need to be willing to suffer innocently and patiently for their sake. For the sake of their salvation. You should not seek a divorce. Nor should you seek to have a household that is just constantly at odds with each other. You are not to give insult to insult. You are not to try to get even. You are not to try to make the person pay for all the things that they have done to you. Or the way they have mistreated you. Or the way in which you have been treated unfairly or unjustly. But instead, to purposefully decide that I am going to suffer innocently and patiently for the sake of their salvation. Lest we think that this only applies to wives and women, husbands are to be willing to suffer for the spiritual benefit of their wives. Notice verse seven of chapter three, three seven. You husbands likewise. Likewise, points back to the wives, likewise points back to Jesus. Likewise, innocently, patiently, you are to suffer redemptively. Notice verse seven. Live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So your prayers won't be hindered. So your actions do not run contrary to your prayers. In other words, you may be praying for your spouse's salvation. You may be praying for your spouse's spiritual well-being. You may be praying that your spouse would experience forgiveness of God. But if you are unwilling to forgive your spouse yourself, your life is running contradictory to your prayers. You are working against the very thing that you're praying for. You're undermining the very spiritual intent that you're bringing to God. So we are to put our prayers into practice. Show her forgiveness. Show her care out of a desire for her spiritual well-being. Application. Suffering redemptively is a very powerful witness. But you may be saying to me this morning, but my spouse is saved and I still suffer at their hands. My, my husband, my wife, they know the Lord. But man, they still treat me rotten. They still say very unkind things to me. They still insult me. They call me names. My husband says I'm stupid. He says I'm lazy. She says I'm uncaring. I'm unthoughtful. And the arguments escalate. And we look upon ourselves and we say we're put upon We're mistreated. And the reality is, many times, people are. You, in fact, may be innocent. You may be guiltless in what you're encountering. Maybe your kids treat you like dirt. And maybe in ways that they'll never understand. You lie awake at night and say to yourself, I don't deserve this. I've sacrificed for them. I've worked for them. I provide a good home for them. I feed them. I've shown them love. And they say that to me. They treat me in that way. Inwardly, have you ever just gotten fed up with suffering? you're just ready to lash out. You're at the boiling point. Okay, I've had enough. Now you're going to hear from me. Now you're going to experience my wrath. Now I'm going to show you what I'm going to do. Now I'm finally going to stand up for myself. Jesus never did that. And he didn't do it, because he suffered redemptively. Look with me at 1 Peter 3:15. 1 Peter 3:15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now, the application is broadened out. It's not just for our spouses any longer. But now it's for anyone that would observe you. Now it's more than just your husband, your wife, your children, even your aunt, your uncle, grandchildren or grandparents. But now it's your coworker. Now it's your next door neighbor. Now it's anyone who has an intimate knowledge of your life. And they marvel. And they look at you. And they say to themselves, and sometimes out loud. I can't believe what that person puts up with. And the way that they show such patience. And such kindness. I'm amazed. And so they ask you. How can you be so patient? How can you be so tolerant? Why don't you get a divorce? Why don't you tell those kids once and for all where the train stops? Why do you allow the boss to talk to you that way? Why don't you stand up for yourself? Why? First Peter 3:15. Be ready To make a defense to everyone who asks you, to give an account for the hope that is in you. The hope, the expectation. What keeps you going? Why do you put up with it? And I hope that the answer that you can give this morning is threefold. Number one, I put up with it so that other people can be saved. Because I want their spiritual well-being. And I want your spiritual well-being. I want you to know what makes me tick. I want you to know what makes me different. It's I'm concerned about your life. I'm concerned about your soul. If it means I have to take some guff in order for you to be brought to to God, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do it. The hope. The hope of being a blessing to someone else. Not just their salvation, but a blessing in the fullest sense of that word. To be an encouragement to some other poor person who has a miserable husband, or an unfaithful wife, or an ungrateful child. And they can look to you and be inspired. Encouraged comforted, helped, and then thirdly, the ultimate hope, and that is that in the end, the God who does rightly and justify uh, justly is going to reward and bless you. Look at first Peter three 8. 1 Peter three eight to sum up, here's the conclusion: to sum up, let all be harmonious. Sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Here's Matthew 5. Pray for those who despitefully use you. Be a blessing instead. And God will in turn bless us. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Here is the Sermon on the Mount fleshed out, people. Here it is in everyday life. Who would ever think about persecution being from one's own family? But it just comes down even to insults. You will put people to shame, and thus bring them under conviction, including people who already are saved. 1 Peter 3.14 But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, if you should suffer innocently, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Verse 16. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Demonstrate your innocence. Put them to shame. May they come to awareness of how awfully they have treated you. May they be humbled by it. May they be repentant. May they be printed. And you shall inherit a blessing. For this is what you've been called to. It goes full circle. Just as Christ was exalted by God and was blessed by God, when you stand in his presence, you will be exalted and blessed by God. It's going to say, well done, now good and faithful servant. We're looking at rewards on Sunday nights. Rewards for what? Suffering innocently, patiently, redemptively. As we go to the communion table this morning, And you think about Christ's death and all that was accomplished for us. Think about how he suffered for us, innocently, patiently, redemptively. And then ask yourself, in what area of my life can I consecrate this anew? What situation in my life can I move to a place of unrest and unsettled and anger and frustration To a place of now, redemptively, positively, saying, you know, I'm going to go to work tomorrow with a new attitude. I'm going to wake up and respond to my husband and wife in a different way my brother, my sister, my son, my mother. I'm going to be willing to suffer innocently. I'm not going to talk back. I'm not going to call names. not going to insult. I'm not going to try to hurt them in any way. I'm going to suffer patiently. I'm not going to give in. I'm going to hang in there. By the grace of God. I'm going to entrust myself to God. I'm going to ask for his help. And then I'm going to suffer redemptively. I'm going to be a blessing to other people. I'm going to be a source of encouragement. And by the grace and mercy of God, may my unbelieving spouse, may my unbelieving child, may my unbelieving friend, my unbelieving coworker unbelieving acquaintance come to believe in Jesus Christ because they see the transforming power and grace of God in the gospel. Let us pray. Our Father, help us this morning as we take of communion, nourish us and and, and, uh, instill within us a desire to, to suffer, to be willing to suffer innocently and patiently and redemptively. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the brethren to come forward at this time. We're going to partake of communion. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, we welcome you to participate this morning in communion. If you do not, we ask that you refrain. Not because of any rule that we have, but because of what uh, Jesus teaches us about partaking of the communion table unworthily. But let me just say to you, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is no reason why today, at this very moment, you can place your faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, who put up with... Uh, All the insults, all of the hardship, all the difficulty, the pain, the suffering of death, and even the wrath of God, so that we can be saved. Uh, Don't pass on that that salvation this morning. Uh, Place your faith and trust in, in, in Jesus, if you would come forward at this time.